Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. As vaccinations across Canada ramp up, our attention turns to the post-pandemic recovery. But how can the country recover without women in the workforce? Dr. Jennifer Robson and Ken Bosenkuhl argue now is not the time for a big bang blow up of childcare. So what do the Carleton University Associate Professor and the J.W. McConnell Professor of Practice at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill recommend? It certainly isn't handing over responsibility to the feds. But in their report, Aggressive Incrementalism, Strengthening the Foundations of Canada's Approach to Child Care, the pair propose a raft of reforms that would expand funding and daycare spaces at existing facilities. But that work needs to begin now, as we begin to see the light at the end of the coronavirus tunnel. Uh, so I, I do hope we're seeing the light at the end of the COVID tunnel. It's been a very long, dark tunnel. Mm. Uh, one of the things that has happened while we've been in this tunnel is that significant shares of childcare providers have gone under. In the best of times, uh, Canada did not exactly have ample supply. And in the last year, um, and, you know, an important share of providers have shuttered. When we're looking ahead to the recovery phase, and I do hope that we can actually genuinely get into that phase uh, quickly, we are still facing significant gaps in terms of um, employment uh, participation, uh, particularly for parents with kids, particularly for mothers with kids. Having them uh, be able to fully rejoin the workforce, or frankly, let's also be clear on this, there are going to be a number of workers who have been separated from the workforce for the better part of six months, even 12 months, who are going to need some significant assistance, right, to find and maintain new employment. And being able to participate in those kinds of programs and services, none of those things, going back to work, getting ready to go back to work, participating in skills training, none of that is possible if you don't have adequate childcare. So this is so essential to Canada's recovery. In the last few decades, uh, economic growth in Canada has come largely from some combination of increased labor force participation by women and increased incomes by women. And that, uh, if we are going to get back on any sort of trajectory, um, taking a step back on either of those things, either because skills of women have been eroded because of the pandemic or, or some women won't be able to join the labor force. If either of those things happen because of uh, child care challenges, then we will, we will come back at a lower level than we entered the pandemic. And that would be a bad thing for all of us. So thinking about the recovery and, and, and not just the recovery, but the trajectory of our economy after that, the participation of women in the workforce is very important. And let me say just at the outset, I'm, this isn't presuming that women uh, should bear all the cost of childcare in Canada. It's more a statement that in the research, it's pretty clear that women do bear the share of childcare in Canada. And quite often when there's a choice of childcare, it is uh, 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 the woman who makes who makes the decision often, un, even perhaps to say unfortunately, but that's the, that's the reality. And so when we look at childcare, this, this often affects uh, the, the ability of women to, to join the labor force. So Ken, you, you've both written that there's a lot of talk about this is the opportunity to do something and to do something big, but you guys don't seem to be a fan of the big bang approach to childcare reform. You know, 
when people look at a problem and they say that everything is broken and the only way to fix it is to break it more and rebuild it, uh, I get nervous that they will, both in the short term and the long term, make some big mistakes. And when I look at a lot of people, uh, a lot of writing in this space, it is some variant of the provinces have done a horrible job, so the federal government should take it over. Whether that's the federal government directing provinces to do more different or better things, or the federal government actually doing more bigger and better things. And if you believe that that this policy has been badly done at the provincial level, I don't know where you suddenly get confidence that it'll suddenly be better if just a different level of government takes it over. And so when Jennifer and I started writing this paper, we wanted to, we wanted to address this urge, desire, or, or proposals to move everything from the provincial to the federal level and say that rather than doing that, why don't we look at what each level of government does and try and figure out what they, what they do and what they ought to do better. And let's fix what's there Let's move forward, as we say, incrementally, but let's do that in an aggressive way. And so there is a separation of what the federal government does and what the provincial governments do in this space. And typically, the federal government provides the, the overarching tax support. Provinces copy that. Uh, provincial governments regulate and provide direct funding and provide some, some targeted funding. And, and so we think that doing a better job at the federal level of providing tax support and doing a better job at the provincial level of providing more spaces and the other things that provinces do um, can be supplemented by the federal government who has more fiscal capacity right now doing something more. Uh, and they started to do something more by, by putting together a, a set of different transfers for childcare. But if the federal government is going to be involved, they should, as we say in the paper, pick a lane. They should try and find a, a narrow way in which they can make childcare better as opposed to either through conditionality uh, impact all of childcare or by taking it over themselves, run the childcare system. And so we just think this, this making what exists better is more likely to lead to success than tearing down or, or refocusing or rejigging who's responsible for this whole area. That's probably a lot of things in one response. All right. But, but at the same time, you know, if we're looking to try to create a better child care environment, would it not make more sense to renegotiate the division of responsibilities in Canadian federalism? Because you know, we look at pharmacare and the conversation there as, a, as an example of, well, when we let the provinces be responsible for it, we got this patchwork-like nature of taking care of people people from their dental to their drugs. Um, so is this more of a, a minority government issue? You know, would not a strong federal mandate from the voters uh, on this be a reason enough to overall overhaul the system in that big bang uh, approach? Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, look, um, we have a constitution. We have uh, divisions of responsibilities between orders of governments. If you view childcare, and I think we should view childcare as part of early learning and care, notwithstanding the fact that we, you know, we do see the strong association between maternal uh, employment opportunities. Um, education is quite clearly an area of provincial jurisdiction. That is not to say that there is not a role, and this is true in pharmacare as well, 
right? But nobody is actually talking about having the federal government implement and administer uh, direct pharmacare services, because frankly, it's just not their area of value add, right? We have, yes, uh, you described it as a patchwork. We have some unevenness or differences according to you know one province to another in terms of current coverage around um, prescription drugs and provincial formularies. Um, you could look at that and say that is a weakness or you could look at that and say actually that is a, uh, a potential strength um, where provinces jurisdictions can learn from one another um, provinces are better suited in many circumstances in terms of service delivery to actually respond to local needs, to be aware of what is and is not working on the ground. Uh, but at the same time, we do have forums, such as the Council of Ministers of Education, for provinces with the federal government to come together, to share best practices, to share information, to learn from one another. I mean, that is the, that is the reason why, for example, in our K-12 or public education system, if you move provinces while you're a student in those age groups, um, you're, uh, you have some reasonable certainty, right, with regards to the continuation of your education, right? That just because you started grade one in Nova Scotia and you moved to Ontario, you do not have to repeat grade one, for example. Um, but that emerged as a result of intergovernmental cooperation, not federal strong arming. And um, I, get, I guess I get concerned about calls for a single national system because of concerns about constitutional feasibility, not to mention uh, log jams with regards to negotiation and potential for intergovernmental conflict. And at the end of the day, look, I spent three years at intergovernmental affairs. And if I, learned, if I learned nothing else, it is that Canadians don't give two poops about what order of government is in charge of what. They expect governments to collaborate and work together. And I think our paper is more about what are the respective areas of, um, of comparative advantage um, that federal and provincial, and we mentioned municipal governments as well, that they currently have and could build upon rather than getting into reordering and renegotiation? Nothing in my 25 years of politics, government, and policy will convince me that a childcare shortage in the one neighborhood in Victoria is better dealt with by a government in Ottawa with elected representatives from Newfoundland as opposed to a government in British Columbia in Victoria. Um, and so the closer you are, you know, there are there are social service delivery things that governments do where the closer you are to the challenge, the better suited you are to address those challenge. There's also things that are better done universally, like tax support. You know, there's no reason necessarily why tax support for someone in Newfoundland should be different than tax support for someone in British Columbia. And so there's, you know, broad the tax system across the country. So tax support can be done by the federal government. But some of these lower, the, the delivery of social services uh, in general, I think, should be done by the level of government closest to the challenge. So the report encourages provinces to redouble their efforts to increase childcare spaces by increasing operating as well as capital grants for licensed providers. 
This brings us back to the point at the beginning of this conversation that a lot of the childcare spaces that existed pre-COVID simply don't exist anymore. And the priority right now is opening up more spaces. Maybe Jennifer has got a better handle on this, but I think there's been some sporadic indications and reporting and data that the number of childcare centers has come down during the pandemic. And I think if there's something that needs very aggressive incremental attention, <laughs> to use our title, it would be it would be this is how do we how do we find out where these shortages like there's many different forms of delivery there's private there's not for profit and there's public delivery of childcare and we need to get a handle very quickly on where the shortages are and how to address those um, Jennifer's probably closer to the data can supplement that there have been some media reports for example that here in Ontario the pace so look in a in a normal year some childcare providers will close. This is not a lucrative area of activity for uh, organizations to get into. They operate on incredibly uh, tight margins. Nobody's getting rich taking care of children? No, 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 remarkably. Um, uh, although it, you know, it, it ought to be something that uh, provides uh, ELC uh, C workers with adequate wages, right? Um, and stable working conditions. Um, but the pace of closures in Ontario has increased rapidly in the last uh, six to eight months. Um, I took a look, for example, at the data in Quebec. So there are three jurisdictions in Canada that in addition to uh, providing direct support to providers for operational costs, as well as the capital grants to build new spaces, also provide um, a refundable tax credit to parents to help defray uh, remaining uh, fees. And in Quebec, um, this is actually an important part of how their system works. And the refundable tax credit is available to those families who are not in one of the, uh, the spaces that account for about two thirds of the supply in the province. So it's, you know, one third. Um, so when the expenditure, the tax expenditure on that credit goes down, that means that there are fewer families, right? All else being equal, there are fewer families who are actually making use of it. Now, enrollment in Quebec's subsidized basis did not go up this past year, um, but the cost of that tax expenditure to the provincial government went down by a full 15%, which means fewer, pay, fewer families collecting the benefit for the fees that they are facing because enrollment is down. It's down in Quebec, it's down in Ontario, it's down in other provinces. Uh, when you lose your job, then you have to cut expenses and try to make ends meet. What's one of the first expenses to go? Childcare. So let's talk a bit about the recommendations from the report, including a more generous, progressive, and more frequently paid refundable tax credit. What's wrong with the existing childcare expense deduction? Just from a pure tax fairness perspective, the current childcare expense deduction is based on the lower income spouse. And so you you have a whole bunch of people just because of the way uh, their family affairs are arranged and the different levels of income. You have a whole bunch of people that I think we would want to get tax support for childcare that aren't able to access it, and perhaps even aren't able to move up the income ladder or the hours ladder to get more work because they aren't able to access it because of this two thirds crazy rule in the childcare expense deduction. 
It's also not a refundable tax credit. So as you enter the labor force and start incurring these expenses, you probably can't access the credit. It also heavily weights to people who pay higher tax rates because it's a deduction and not a credit. And so I think there are a whole host of, from a pure tax policy perspective, challenges with the credit. And so moving it to a refundable credit shifts uh, the provision of tax support from upper income to lower and middle income. And the way in which we've done this, which is based on a paper by uh, by Kevin Milligan and Alex Loren for the City Howe Institute, and also uh, Jennifer referenced this earlier, what is done in Quebec with tax support, provide a larger refundable credit for people at the lower income scale and slowly lower that credit as incomes go up, um, just provides a much fairer better system of childcare support for the people that I believe most Canadians would want to get that support. So that, that's that's sort of the pure tax policy rationale for making that change. If you believe that it is fundamentally an issue of horizontal equity so that um, women who uh, do not engage in paid work but instead uh, stay home and provide uh, uh, child care to their their children and home care at home, um, that they don't face a penalty when they decide to uh, take on employment income because uh, there are suddenly uh, requirements to have someone else take care of their children. Uh, if that's your perspective, well, that's certainly built on an assumption that it, the, the natural order of affairs is, in fact, for the mothers to be staying home as opposed to seeing the responsibility of uh, child care as something that is shared within the family. In other words, by making the deduction, by pinning the deduction specifically to the income of the lower earning spouse, there's an assumption, there's an implicit assumption that that lower earning spouse's income is discretionary, right? That that, that spouse could otherwise just elect to stay home, you know, on all else being equal. But in fact, um, in male-female couples and uh, you know I just I just want to echo Ken's point um, that yes of course in in practice we do know that a disproportionate burden of unpaid care falls on women in male female couples but in male female couples average income earned income by uh, by women who are working for pay outside the home is not discretionary it's on average 40% of household income. That is a significant amount of the household income to be losing here. So this, this idea of, of assuming a, that there's a breadwinner, probably male, and a secondary earner could choose to stay home or not. So we have this deduction to sort of even out the, dis, the, the choice between those two is just simply completely outdated, sort of stuck in 1972 thinking when the, cre when the credit was first proposed. The other thing I'll just add on is that um, it as Ken mentioned, heavily skews towards higher income households in part because um, they have greater capacity to absorb the out-of-pocket expenses for early learning and care costs at the time that they are due. Remarkably, tuition costs for early learning and care are not paid after you file your tax return. They're paid on a month-to-month -month basis. If you're higher income, it's easier to absorb that cash flow expense and then claim it back Later, you can also afford to pay for more and higher fee services. And so it maybe shouldn't be a surprise, as the Department of Finance reported uh, just last month, that more than 50% of the value of that deduction goes to families with uh, uh, an income of over $150,000.
this is a really inefficient tax credit, really inefficient, right? And it costs the Canadian taxpayer over a billion dollars at the federal level alone. So making changes to this deduction is actually also about getting more efficiency out of that billion dollars, doing a better job of distributing it to families where it can do the most good. This uh, reinforces the the statement that you had made within the reports that the child care expense deduction just reinforces patriarchal gender roles by way of requiring that it be based upon the lower income earner and that has been women historically in our society. Um, With the government in power today, is there the political will to tackle this specific issue? This is a government that has declared themselves a feminist government. This, uh, uh, I think, is also coming at a, a time when their own, as I said, their own finance department has just issued a report on uh, tax expenditures that took a look at the incidence of the child care expenses deduction. Um, you know, that figure I quoted earlier is directly from their own uh, officials' research. So um, for a government that is has clearly signaled that it wants to do something important on child care, uh, that it, uh, I think in the speech from the throne, the language was Quebec has shown us the way. Um, an important part of Quebec system is that more progressive income tested refundable tax credit. So look, I think the timing is there. The last thing I just wanted to say on it is that if you start from a child-centered perspective, that early learning and care is fundamentally about opportunities for early child development, for you know good quality services, programs and services, then that's very clearly a family cost, right? And not something that ought to be netted against a secondary earner who, as I said before, you know, we treat their income as though it was somehow discretionary. This is this is if this is fundamentally about can a child get access to good quality earning, early learning and care, then that's how we should be treating the, uh, the tax recognition of those costs, not as this you know, sort of breadwinner model of the family. I come from a slightly different tradition than Jennifer on some of these things, but let me just add this. Over the last 10, 15 years, the, the creation and the expansion of child benefits to families, which is not about child care, it's about just providing child benefits to families, has incre- increased marketably, markedly under a conservative government and then continued to increase under a liberal government. And now we have a massive reduction in child poverty in Canada because uh, both a government from one side of the spectrum and a government from the other side of the spectrum did a massive increase over 15 year, 20 years of child benefits. I see a similar consensus emerging on childcare. Now, again, I think we'll disagree on the, on the details between the different parties, but if you look at the current conservative leader in his leadership platform, he proposed a very generous increase in the refundable tax credit. Now he did it as a temporary measure for COVID, but he, he said he would double, double the limits and, uh, 
and turn it into a refundable tax credit. So, and, and the government of Ontario has moved to a more generous refundable model and is also moving to answer an earlier question, moving to provide these payments monthly for childcare, which I think is a really important innovation and something we've learned from COVID is that governments can actually do some of this stuff administratively better than, than maybe Jennifer thought they could. I was skeptical and I was wrong. But government can do these things uh, uh, more quickly and monthly. So I, I, I'm I'm not anxious about the partisan debate on this issue. I think we've come to a point where uh, there's, I think, broad consensus that we need to do something. I think there is less consensus on what exactly that looks like. But hey, that's why we have elections and that's why we have political parties so that we can debate those differences and uh, and move forward. Some listeners might um, otherwise perceive that this is a question about should we do tech support or should we um, provide funding to build and sustain new spaces? And I, I just want to make absolutely clear, look, the, the issue of more responsive, more progressive, more efficient support through the tax system and a refundable credit is recognizing the fact that for at least the foreseeable future, some parents are going to be facing fees, right? And those can be um, those can be really costly to their household budgets. Um, this is not an either or, it's a both and. We need to do the funding to create and sustain spaces, and we need to get more bang for our buck out of the billion dollars that we're already spending on the tax system. Dr. Jennifer Robson is an associate professor at Carleton University. Ken Bossenkuhl is the J.W. McConnell Professor of Practice at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill University. Still to come from a physically distant C.D. Howe. April 21st, Capital Markets Modernization in Ontario. The future is bright. A webinar with Walid Solomon, the chair of Capital Markets Modernization Task Force at the Government of Ontario. April 26th, Electrifying Canada's Automobile Sector. We'll discuss the future of Canada's auto sector with Brian Kingston of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association and Megan Nichols, the Director General of Environmental Policy at Transport Canada. And then April 28th, leading the North American automotive value chain with Don Walker, the former CEO of Magna International. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy. Stay safe. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.